We have two preview services, one today and one three weeks from today, which is March the 3rd. And that'll be where we're kind of getting a feel for what we're doing, kind of know what's going on, gathering maybe more people to be a part of the team. And then we'll launch weekly Sunday morning services on March the 24th, which is the weekend before Easter. So um, that's kind of what's going on with that. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians today. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, just to give you an idea of who I am, uh, I grew up uh, in the country between Conway and Georgetown on a dirt road in the middle of a bunch of farmlands. Uh, I was uh, a little redneck running around. Uh, my mom and sisters are, James doesn't think I'm a real redneck, by blood, but maybe not by some of the things I like, but um, I don't drive a big, giant, jacked-up truck. Nothing wrong if you do. That's just not the way I roll. Um, my, my mom and my sister are actually a part of the plan. My mom has been doing children's ministry for, I don't know, 30-some-odd years, and so she's back with your kids. If you have that there, they're in good hands. I mean, look how well I turned out, so <laughs> you can be assured everything's okay back there. Um, I met my wife whenever I was in high school at in youth group of the church I grew up in in Conway. I remember when she came in, uh, a little uh, petite, beautiful, some kind of Asian girl with long hair down to here walked into the room and she was carrying a Bible that was almost as big as she was. It was a giant print King James Bible. Have you ever seen those with the gold embossed on the front? And it had Megan Morgan on the bottom. And I thought, that is a girl that I need to know. She's obviously serious about Jesus. And she's carrying a Bible like this to youth group. And we started dating, hanging out, whatever, senior year of high school. Five years later, uh, the guy who was my mentor one day asked me, so uh, what's going on with Megan? Like, when are you going to ask her to marry you? And I'm like, well, I have no idea. He's like, she's the one, right? I'm like, yeah, definitely, she's the one. He's like, well, when are you going to do it? And I was like, uh, I guess when the time is right. And he said, well, when will the time be right? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and five months later, we were married. Uh, that was 1999. And about eight years into that, we had our daughter, Sophia. And she's five years old now. She's back with my mom as well, um, we, I started, a, I started searching titles not long after high school. I was a member of our church. We were participating in the youth ministry. We helped to, to lead it. And I was going to a small Bible college it, that was based out of our church, or kind of a video campus kind of thing. And uh, I, start, I started searching titles. Uh, that's for real estate records, in case you don't know. That was like 17 years ago. I thought I would do it for maybe a year. I told everybody I was just passing through. And uh, now, all these years later, I'm still doing it. I started a business uh, seven, almost eight years ago. And everything was kind of going fine. And then about three years ago or so, uh, I was sitting, doing some paperwork at my desk in my home office. And the thought came to my head. Uh, you know what I really want to do with my life? Like, this is what I would really love to do. If I could help teach the gospel and be a part of a community of people 
who lived on mission for Jesus. Like, that I could give my life for. Nothing wrong with title searching, but for me, it just doesn't get my blood pumping. And I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. I went to met. I threw it up the part. I started crying like a little baby. Um, I was like, oh, man, that is what I really want to do. Later on, when I composed myself, I went to Megan and said, hey, this is what I think God's calling me, us to do. Like, what do you think about that? She said, yeah, I can, I can track with that. She's like, well, what do we do? And I'm like, I have no idea. Let's just think about it and pray about it and see what happens. And so we spent about a year or, or more thinking about it, praying about it, seeing what God wanted us to do. And uh, we ended up meeting up with a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's a very catchy name, isn't it? You remember it? For, for short, you'll hear it called the EFCA or the E-Free. There's other names I don't even know yet. I didn't even know who they were uh, two years ago. Pardon me. I, um, we found out, I don't know why I'm telling you this, just over a year ago, uh, that I had extremely high blood pressure. It was the weekend after Thanksgiving, and my nose started bleeding, and it, I could not get it to stop over like three or four days, and being a guy, I like kind of hid it for a long time, and then I finally couldn't because I had to stick things up my nose in order to keep it from bleeding. I thought, yeah, this isn't normal. We have to do something about this. So we went to the hospital, found out like my brain was about to explode from blood pressure, and I started taking this medicine to like so that I, my brain wouldn't explode, and it makes my mouth now dry out when I talk, and so... Um, I will drink probably three gallons of water while I'm up here. So just forgive that, just to let you know, what, know what's going on. So the Evangelical Free Church of America, we uh, underwent an application process with them. Uh, a whole lot of paperwork, a whole lot of interviews, a whole lot of stuff went on. And then they approved us as church planners in uh, November of 2011. And so that's when we started the transition of transitioning out of our church, kind of getting everything ready to help plant Doxa. And we, last spring, had a meeting at our house, just kind of put kind of verbal word out, hey, if we're going to do this, if anybody wants to know anything about it, you know, you can show up. So some people showed up in our living room, and we met a few times, talked about how we felt we were called to plant a church and what I thought that would look like. I had been thinking about planting a church and being a part of a church plant for 10 years. I just thought that's what people did. I searched titles and thought about church planting and being a part of a church plant and dreaming about that and uh, come to find out not everybody thinks that way. Like that's just something kind of I was wired to do. And so um, we, started that tr- we started meeting with everybody in the spring and started to kind of gather a core group of people together who said, yeah, we kind of, we jive with the fact that we're about Jesus worship, community and mission, that we can give ourselves as a team to that kind of of mission, to be a part of a community of people who are gathered around Jesus Christ, with him as the center, knowing that he is worthy of all worship and praise. And the worship isn't about singing songs or even gathering on Sunday morning. We understand that Jesus bought my life with his, with his precious blood. And because of that, I have to respond in worship, and all of my life is worship. The way that I am a husband to my wife, or the way that I father my daughter, or I own a business, or I interact with my neighbors, or friends, or other believers, has to be out of worship, responding to Jesus Christ in, in gratefulness and, and praise for all that he has done for me. And because 
that affects all of my life, then it changes the way my relationships are. I can live in deep, authentic community with other people. There's no such thing as true community apart from knowing Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, like we're looking for some kind of identity or from other from each other. We're looking for you to do something for me or me to, I'm always judging how you view me and how, my reputation with you. But because Jesus has drastically changed my identity, because I can be sure of who I am in Jesus Christ, but because of what he has done for me on the cross, that my right standing with the Father and my right standing with man doesn't depend on how well I'm checking off the boxes and doing the right thing. It doesn't matter whether I read my Bible this morning or I prayed this morning. No, that's important. It doesn't matter whether, whether I uh, have missed church the last three months or I've been faithful every single Sunday. My right standing with the Father, my right standing with other people is based solely on what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. That he is present now at the right hand of the Father, tying me, keeping me connected to God. Because of that, I can be real with you and you can be real with me. I can tell you just how messed up I am because I know that it's only the messed up people that are able to be connected to the Father. Because it's only through me admitting that I am not able to do right, to do the right things, that Jesus was able for me. And then together as a community of people, who share our lives deeply with each other, then we live on mission, knowing that the mission that Jesus came on from heaven to earth in order to, to save a people for God's own possession, to gather a family to the Father, which we're going to talk about this morning whenever I finally get to our text, that, that that's the same mission that he has called us to join him in. And it's the greatest kind of life it gives deep meaning to our work, to our family, to the seemingly mundane things that you're going to do tomorrow morning when you wake up and you got to get the kids to school or you got to get to school and you got to get to work. And it just seems like day in, day out, you're just doing the deal. That living on the same mission that Jesus came on to see God gather a family to himself gives great depth of meaning to all those things because we understand that all of that plays into the mission that Jesus came on and that we are on. So that's in as much of a nutshell as I can give you is kind of how we got to this point. And so as Dale said, what we're going to do when we gather on Sunday mornings, we're going to sing about how great and how good and how mighty God is. We're going to celebrate all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection on our behalf. We're going to open the scriptures together, whether it's me or Dale or somebody else, and we're going to see what God is speaking to us. And then after we study the scriptures together, we're going to respond to Jesus. We're going to respond to God in worship, and we're going to respond by partaking of communion together, remembering what he did for us. And then we're going to gather during the week in small groups, what we call community groups, in each other's homes to pray together and to share about how God is speaking to us and what he's doing. It's not another Bible study. It's not a bunch of 
paperwork for you to keep up with. The Bible studies are great. The purpose of community groups is for us to gather together and share our lives together and respond together to what God is doing in our lives. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That's going to be the first book of the Bible that we're going to work through. We're going to study it today and then three weeks from today and then every week. Um, and I, I will put you at ease if you're planning on coming back or maybe you're not, but just to let you know that uh, we're not just going to take two verses at a time. So but the, but we, I read this and I got stuck here and we're going to deal with this. And hopefully we'll, we'll cover Ephesians at a bigger clip or we'll be here for 18 years. But it's a rich, rich book and uh, I guess if I could really cover it in 18 years, we would be happy. So let's read what God is saying to us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul has a pretty interesting story. Uh, if you know it, just bear with me. If you don't know it, then this will be great. Paul was, um, he was an interesting man. He, had, he grew up in a very religious family. He grew up in a family where they were at church every day. He was in Sunday school. He was going through the deal. He learned the scriptures from a very, very early age. And Paul, uh, who was called Saul at the time, we won't get into that, but Paul, for simplicity's sake, that's what we're going to call him today, Paul kind of took to the religion thing. Uh, you, if you grew up and you went to Sunday school, like you remember the kid that always knew the answer and always raising a hand, kind of the teacher's pet? Like that was Paul. He was he got it from a very very early age. And so Paul uh, learned the scripture and became like a member of the church. And more than a member of the church, he became a member of the most conservative part of the church he could he could become a part of. They were called the Pharisees. Paul was very serious about religion. Uh, he tells us in another uh, part of the scripture that in another letter that, letter that he was writing that he kept all of the rules, that nobody could find fault with him on how well he kept the rules. And that, when I say the rules, I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments, like love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And that's not, that's not, and, and don't, don't sleep with your... Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife or cover their oxen. I haven't had any problem with covering anybody's oxen ever in my life. But, you know, the, don't steal, don't lie, all the Ten Commandments. It's not just those. It was all the little teeny minuscule rules that were involved in Jewish life and being part of the church. You remember all the rules? Maybe you grew up in church. Like, some of us grew up in conservative churches, and there are a lot of, like, intricate rules, things you can do and can't do. I have some neighbor, uh, not neighbors, I have some relatives, and they're part of a church where you can't watch R-rated movies. But you can watch them at home. You can't go to the theater and watch them, but you can stay home and watch them. And I was like, that just doesn't even make any sense, but somehow it became a rule, and that's something that you had to keep. And Paul was excellent at, he nailed them all. He was very, very serious. But Paul had another side uh, that we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, so Paul was so serious about religion that this, this group of people that were kind of a part of the church at the time, they started saying that 
somebody else had come and had fulfilled the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time. That was Jesus. And they said he had kind of changed the whole landscape. He had changed everything. And that got Paul very, very angry. And so Paul decided that he would either stop them from preaching this or he was going to kill them. So he, Paul was a religious zealot. We have a lot of re religious zealots all over the world today, right? They're in America. They, they crash into the, the Twin Towers. But they're not just Islamic zealots. We have Christian zealots. We have people that bomb abortion clinics and kill doctors who commit abortion, which is wrong, but they take it way to the extreme. Right? They're zealots. Paul was like that. He was serious about God. But Paul was also extremely well-educated. He, he knew the rules, he knew the scripture, and he knew the laws of the land. And he, he was very skeptical that what they said about Jesus was true, that Jesus had come, lived a sinless life, died, and rose again. He did not believe that was true. So he was both a religious zealot and a skeptic. And on the road to a city called Damascus one day, where he was going to actually imprison or kill believers in the city of Damascus. He was on the way with his entourage, because everybody who's big time has an entourage, and on his way, something happened. It says a blinding flash of light came out of nowhere, and it was so bright that it knocked people over. Paul fell off of his steed onto the ground. It was so bright that nobody could look at it. They were all cowering. And then a voice spoke from heaven. Can you imagine? Like you're on the way to Loris for some reason, or you're on the way to Merle Zillet or North Myrtle Beach. Maybe you're on the way to, to get you some Calabash seafood up in Calabash. You're on the way, a blinding flash of light. You pull over, you can't move. Everybody's, and then and all, every, his, all his entourage heard was like thunder from heaven. But he heard, someone speak to him. In fact, let's look at that. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 7 real quick. I didn't plan on taking you there, but uh, we're going to look there. I'm sorry. It's, Paul, it's uh, chapter 9. Apologize. Verse 9, but, but Saul, that's Paul, remember, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So if he found me belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, so he was a religious zealot, set against Christianity. He was also a skeptic, didn't believe this whole thing about Jesus rising from the dead. All of a sudden, a blinding flash of light happens. Somebody speaks from heaven, and his, his whole tone changes. This is how he responds to him. Who are you, Lord? So he's recognizing, like, whoever is speaking to me is the boss. This is the real deal that's talking to me. And he said, that's Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're here to do. 
The men who were traveling, traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Look down at verse 20 um, after he gets his sight back. And immediately, <laughs> immediately he proclaimed what? Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Paul's experience was he was both a religious zealot and a skeptic. And he, his whole world changed when he met Jesus and Jesus called him out of the way that he was going and called him to himself. And that's all of our stories if we are walking with Jesus today. It's your, it will be your story if you do not yet know him and one day will come to know him. It's because you meet Jesus on the road and you're going your own way. You're going to Damascus. You're going on your way to becoming partner. You're on your way to maybe ruin your life in drugs, alcohol abuse. Maybe you're on your way to just have a nice, quiet life with your wife and family. Maybe you're on your way to, uh, to get a degree. Whatever you're on your way to do. He meets us on the road and he calls us out away from the way that we're going and to himself. And that's what Paul means whenever he says to the saints who are in Ephesus. A saint isn't somebody who is nailing it and like living a holy, perfect life. It doesn't mean that you got up this morning and you spent an hour praying and you read three chapters of the Bible and you witnessed to somebody on the way here about who Jesus was. Maybe you did. If you did, awesome. That is great. Maybe you've dropped the ball a lot. But being a saint isn't about nailing it and checking all the boxes off the Christianity checklist. Being a saint is being a called out one. It's being called out from your life and being called to the Father. That's what the wording there means in the Greek. It's, it's the word for holy. And holy means set apart. You've been called out of your life and you've been called to Jesus Christ himself. To the saints who were in Ephesus. Now Ephesus was a city of about 250,000 people. In a, it uh, was right in the middle of a trade route. And uh, anytime you're in the, in the core part of a trade route, there's a lot of money to be made, especially back then. The, there was the major east-west road ran through there. They had a port. Like, they, they were, they had some cash coming in. But also, so... By the way, 250,000 people, that's roughly the size of the Grand Strand. We have about 300,000 people that live in the Grand Strand area. So, talking to a city, about 300,000, 250,000, we think it may have been maybe even above that. 250 to 300,000 people lived in Ephesus. Um, it was also a city that had a lot of tourism because they had one of the seven wonders of the world right there in their city. It's called the Temple of Artemis. You heard of, uh, you've heard of Artemis or Diana was the uh, Roman god. That's what they called her, the same kind of same god. They had a temple that was larger than the, it, it, it was huge. It was larger than the Pantheon in Rome. It was huge. Or Athens, excuse me. It was huge. It was, the outside of it parts were overlaid with gold. 
It was amazing. And inside they had a statue to Artemis. And they claimed that the statue had fallen from heaven. In fact, we think that maybe, obviously the statue didn't fall from heaven, but maybe a meteor had. And it was sort of like kind of where the, the, um, the whole myth kind of came from. But they had this, this giant temple that people flocked. Excuse me, flocked to come see. So they had a lot of tourism always bustling through. And they also, I just made me think about Myrtle Beach um, and all our beachwear stores, they sold a lot of trinkets. You would come and visit the, uh, the Temple of Artemis, and you would buy all through the city. They had little mini temples that you could buy. And they had the pillars and the, the statue in the middle, and they had all kinds of things that you would sell and you would buy. And people would take those back to their homes and put them. Uh, in, in their home in a place where they could worship Artemis. So in that city, Paul visited in Acts chapter 19. You can read about that. Paul visited, and he stayed there for about two years and preached the gospel. And God did some amazing things in the city of Ephesus. So much so that at the end of chapter 19, it says that all of Ephesus and the whole region of Asia, which is not the continent of Asia, it's like the whole region that they were in, Everyone in Asia, both Jew and Greek, heard the gospel. Isn't that amazing? All of it heard. It was such a great move. Paul leaves on his journey, and he's writing them a letter back, and that's why he's saying, you are saints. You have been called out of the former life. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus These are the last four words that we're going to look at. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace is amazing. I don't say that because it's a a hymn that we sing a lot. Are you awesome on the bagpipes? You ever heard Amazing Grace on the bagpipes? It, It rocks on the bagpipes. But it's not. Grace is amazing because of the truth. Here's what grace is. Grace is, you, (laughs) they're having a great time back there, aren't they? Grace, grace is this fact, that you were born a sinner. (laughs) I'm not going to try to compete with that. I'm going to wait until he closes the door. Here's the truth. Here's grace. Grace is, because Adam sinned in the garden, We inherited that sin, and you were born a sinner. You you don't sin, go against the commands of God, because um, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner, because that's how you're hardwired. It's hardwired into your DNA, into the very fiber of of, of who you are. Hannah Rose is a beautiful little baby. I remember when Sophia was born. I thought, she's so... Beautiful. And then for months and months, like, how could she ever do anything wrong? Look at her. Look how cute she is. But have you ever had a child or watched a baby? You don't have to teach the child how to do wrong, do you? You don't have to teach the child to disobey you or say no. It just comes pre-packaged inside their program. They are hardwired to do that. And we are all in that same bed together. And a That's why we sin. That's why we're selfish, we're prideful, we're arrogant, we want our own way, we're greedy. We don't have to teach kids to to be that way. They are just that way. And that's the way you and I are. 
And so apart from grace, apart from somebody doing something for us that we could not do, we are stuck being sinners. And being a sinner is being a lifetime apart from God. They, sin can have no place with them. And so what he did is amazing in that the only way the price could be paid for your and my debt that we owed God was for somebody to pay the penalty for us. And so he sent his son as a, both a human and God at the same time. I have no idea how that works. And he came and he lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death for you and for me in order that God might apply that payment to your account. That's grace. Grace is different than mercy. Mercy, mercy is, uh, you know, somebody does something bad, maybe somebody does something, maybe they owe me some money and they, they can't pay you back or uh, my, my daughter did something wrong and I'm like, that's okay, don't worry about it. That's mercy. But you know what? Mercy can only go so far. There's some things in life that are tragic. The murders of kindergarten children in the elementary school like we're sitting in today. And we know instinctively that if that guy comes out and says, I'm sorry, I made a bad decision. Like, that's not right. Something has to be done. There has to be justice that has to happen, right? Well, we, each of us, by choice and by nature, have decided that we want to go our own way other than to follow God. An infinite, holy God. And because we sin against him, the, the due penalty that comes to us is an infinite penalty. It's not a small deal. When you go against the creator of life and breath, of heaven and earth, of the mountains and the sea, and you say, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing now. That's a very big deal. And that's why grace had to come into play and not just mercy. God couldn't say, eh, don't worry about it. Payment had to be made. And the payment is either your life, my life, or somebody to substitute for us. And there was only one way that could happen. <coughs> There's only, there only one way that somebody could live a sinless life and die a, a death for our penalty. And that was for Jesus Christ to come. But now grace isn't just something that happened when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and my sins. Grace is God's ever-present help in the life of a believer to enable you to live a different kind of life. Becoming a Christian isn't a fresh start. And now i got to do things right. Becoming a Christian is 
God's very presence coming to indwell me and to change me over time. So that over time, I think differently. I talk differently. I react with my wife and my children and my friends differently because of the work that has happened by the grace of God in my life. It's, it's a gracious work. Becoming a Christian isn't a weight like, oh, i got to carry this weight and do all these things. Notice he didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you, Ephesus. I haven't been there in a long time. And I just want you guys to know you need to toe the line. That's not the way he starts off. He starts out by saying, grace to you. May your life be filled with God's gracious work in your life. Grace to you, and then grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. That, that wording there, the New Testament is written in Greek, and it harkens back to a kind of an Old Testament idea, but the idea of peace is what the Jews called, called shalom. So it doesn't mean like, like this peace and quiet. Peace, this idea of shalom means wholeness. It means, uh, a, a, it means that all has been made right. It harkens back to the idea that in the very beginning, whenever he created the heavens and earth, he put man in the garden, and there was like, it was a man and a wife naked, hanging out with each other. It was a pretty good deal. It was peaceful. They didn't have to, they worked. They had jobs to do, but it wasn't by the sweat of their brow. They ate fruit and named animals. It was a pretty cool gig. He was in charge of the whole creation. It was awesome. That was, that's the idea of shalom or wholeness or peace. And then when sin entered in, everything fractured from there. Relationships are fractured. The, the, we work the ground by the sweat of our brow. It's, life is hard, right? Life, have you experienced that? If you live long enough, then you know this truth. Life is hard. You are either suffering now, you are coming out of suffering, or you're going to go into suffering. That is life. Life is hard. It's hard times surrounded by some really cool stuff. There's no way around it. And the idea of peace is the fact that God is going to set everything right. This world is at odds where people are fighting. We can't get along. Even uh, husbands and wives and parents and kids and neighbors, like we're, we're always feuding and going at it. So nations against nations and groups against groups. And how many of you guys got tired in the election of hearing the people go at it all the time? You're like, why can't we all get along? Here's why we can't get along, because the world is messed up and, fra and fractured and broken. But God is in the process of weaving it back together and bringing everything back into shalom, into wholeness again. And when Jesus Christ returns, that will be made totally done. It will be done. There will be peace and wholeness. But until then, as a Christian and as a community of believers, we experience that shalom, that peace, that wholeness in my heart and with each other. And it all flows from the fact that we are made right with God when we become a believer, when we become a Christian, when we confess our, our sin and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our substitute and we recognize that my life is not my own, 
Whenever that happens, peace comes into my heart. And peace rules in our midst as a community of believers. It doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements. It doesn't mean things are hard. But there's a foretaste of what is coming. Grace, unmerited favor lead to you. And peace, wholeness, shalom in your hearts and in your relationships flowing from what Christ has done for us and setting us right with the Father. This is the next thing he says. From God our Father. This is the truth that I'm going to wrap up. Um, Dan doesn't mind. He's, he's holding Max in his arms back in the back row. In case you can't tell, Max is not his biological son. <laughs> Dan and Kelsey looked for a long time for a son or a daughter to be theirs. And Max came and they got a call like 1 o'clock or so in the afternoon and said, 7 o'clock tonight, you have a son. He'll be at your house. I, I talked to Dan that day on the phone. He's like, so, so uh, how do you feel? He's like, well, I feel like I should have done more than watch TV today. <laughs> So they, they got a son, they kept him for the time as the adoption proceedings were going, and then just uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? January 18th. January 18th, they stood before a judge in Columbia. I'm gonna get emotional. They stood before a judge in Columbia holding Max, and the judge declared that Max was their son. And Megan told me what I was able to be there, but Megan told me what he said. He said, Max is, not only does he have every right that a biological son would have to you, he is a biological son to you. He's your son. Sorry. I'm out of drinking water. And when you become a believer, you are adopted as a son of the Father. And that means every right, every bit of good standing that our oldest son, Jesus, our oldest brother, Jesus, has before the Father, you now have. You're every much a son as he is. He is your Father. That in, in a way that is more real than you are a son or a daughter of your earthly parents. It's a bond. And it's not just because he just happens to like us. It's done the way the, way the legal proceeding of adoption happens. It is done, finished. This, this dotted line is signed because Jesus Christ did the work for you to become a son. And he is standing right beside or sitting beside the Father right now in heaven as the surety that when you don't feel like it, you're still a son or a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who stood, I don't know where he stood. There was no such thing as space yet. But the one who stood and spoke and space happened flung the stars into the expanse. 
who thought up the intricate nature of how of how the world holds together, of, of how a seed would fall to the ground and somehow become a plant that, that, that imagined caterpillars and eagles and giraffes and hippos. Don't they, look, don't they look weird? But he imagined all of that. The one who imagined the, the way the human body would work in ways that we still don't quite know how it happens. He did all of that. That one, that God is your father if today you are a child. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are a son of God the Father. And then lastly, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a called out one, or if you will be a called out one, it is because you recognize that your life is not your own, that you were bought with a price, that, that though we seek pleasure and joy in all kinds of places. It's not wrong to seek pleasure and joy, but that we have looked in false places for pleasure and joy. And that the true sum of all beauty, all peace, all hope, all love, all joy, all of it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that he That brings such a peace when you know that, when you experience it that yourself, when you repent and you come before him and you say, my life is not my own, it is yours. Do with it as you see fit. There's a joy and a peace that, that you experience that can only come from being united to your Father and your Lord. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to break the bread. The band's going to come back up, and they're going to play some music. We're going to worship together. And Dale and I are going to have the bread and the juice together. And we, whenever you feel led, um, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then feel free to come up and partake of the bread and the juice. And the way that we'll do it is we're going to use what's called the intinction method today, and that's where you... Take off a bit of bread, you dip it in the juice, and then you partake of it that way. Uh, if you don't feel like you're ready to do that, it's fine. You can stay. There'll be no, it's no problem. Um, and then we're going to respond to our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his peace that he has bought for us by making us called out ones in worship together. And then we'll be done. Father, I thank you so much for all that you are for us and all that you have done for us. Uh, your love is amazing. You are amazing. Uh, we just look around the world that you've created and it blows our minds. And so we can't imagine how amazing and awesome and big that you must be if you created this thing. And it's like a drop in the, bu in the bucket compared to who you are. So, Father, each of us, in each of our journey, each of our road, wherever we're going, just as Saul was on his way to Damascus that day, God, um, we want to stop this morning, either realize for the first time or to simply re-remember today all that you are.
all that you secured for us by your sacrificial death on the cross. I ask that your presence would be here.